0: mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices message and data rates may apply bank of america and a member FDIC.
1: what i would like to see is that we get more conscious about what are our choices and actions in the service of so if i'm constantly trying to prove myself and overcompensate and it's coming from a place of avoidance like maybe that's not so healthy. But if instead I'm focusing on who and how do I want to be in the room, even though I'm having all this self-doubt, you know, what does that look like? And even if the behavior might look the same, to me, that piece about like, what is this in the service of and psychological flexibility feels like a really important one. And I think that's what we're lacking. That was me, your co-host, Jill Stoddard on
0: Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High Denver, Colorado, and co author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal, and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University.
1: And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard,
0: author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock.
2: Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order.
1: We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries, but when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's zocdoccom slash P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C.
0: We're so happy to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education here at Psycholish Off the Clock. They offer continuing education for promoting lasting change with evidence-based training, and they're the premier provider in continuing education for clinical professionals. Some of their ongoing on-demand anytime classes include ACT Immersion with Steve Hayes, ACT in Practice, and also the DNAV model, which is with Louise Hayes, who works with adolescents and is fantastic.
2: Yes. And we have big news. We, Diana and Debbie here, are offering a Praxis training. It's a two-hour workshop on Wednesday, April 28th. And you can sign up. Best of all, it's free free and anyone can join. It's not limited to therapists. And what we're going to do is talk about some of the concepts from our book that we have coming out in May and offer you some practices that you can use from acceptance and commitment therapy to thrive in your own life. So we're really excited to be offering that. You should check it out and
0: we hope you can join us. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com to get a promotion code on live events through Praxis. We're also affiliates with Dr. Rick Hansen's online NeuroDharma program and his Foundations of Wellbeing programs, and you can find out more about them at our website. Off the offtheclockpsych.com where you'll get a $40 discount.
2: Hey, this is Debbie and Jill here today. We're going to be talking to you about imposter syndrome. Jill and I discovered that we have, a sh- have had this shared experience of imposter syndrome in our own lives. And we were on a panel together last year about imposter syndrome at a conference. And Jill has since taken a really deeper interest in this phenomenon. And he's even writing a book about imposter syndrome. She's working on that now. And so today, we're going to be chatting with you, sharing what we've learned about imposter syndrome, because what we've discovered, Jill, is that it's quite a common phenomenon, isn't it?
1: It is. And, and I think, you know, what really triggered my interest is, After that panel that we did at ACBS last year, there were so many people that reached out to me, and I don't know if you had that experience too, but I could not believe that overwhelming sort of like, oh my gosh, me too, this has happened to me, and the Art of Charm podcast reached out to me afterward to do an episode on imposter syndrome, and you know, it's just such a common experience for people, and seemed like there was a there was a big interest in it. So I love that we're doing this and we can we can talk more about it.
2: Yeah, me too. I think it had a really strong impact on people because it is something that so many people experience, but it isn't talked about that much. Maybe it's starting to be more now. But I think people really had this response that kind of shocked me of like, thank you for telling your story and for talking about this, because I've been experiencing this and I didn't really realize it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And when we put the panel together, I wanted to have panelists who were all objectively successful, you know, had a lot of accomplishments behind their name to demonstrate to people that even those who you might look at and perceive as someone who must not have imposter syndrome, because how else would they be so successful? you know, to see that even the most successful people struggle with this. And in fact, it's positively correlated with success, that the more successful someone is, the more prone they are to imposter syndrome. And I think that was kind of the resounding spirit of the messages we got after that panel was I couldn't believe those five people I was looking at up there had imposter syndrome and were succeeding despite that. And so maybe I can too.
2: Really yes. Cool. Yeah, right. That you don't have to not have imposter syndrome to be able to do cool things in the world that you want to be doing. Well, we're going to make this a conversation between the two of us. We're going to share some information and also a little bit about our own experiences with imposter syndrome. And it's going to be kind of me interviewing Jill because she has a lot of expertise in this area, but also a lot of back and forth between two co-hosts. Yeah. So Jill, why don't you start us out with a basic definition? What is imposter syndrome? What does that even mean?
1: Yeah. So it was first identified by two psychologists, Suzanne Imes and Pauline Rose Clance in, I believe it was 1978, and is essentially an experience. They initially called it the imposter phenomena, phenomenon, which I really think is more apt Then calling a syndrome is so pathologizing, and we'll talk about that later. But so this phenomenon is something that occurs where a person doesn't believe in their own success or belongingness or accomplishments, you know, essentially a feeling of inadequacy and this constant fear of being exposed as a fraud. So, you know, like, oh gosh, I was invited to co host this podcast, but any time now, Debbie and Diana and Yael are going to figure out, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, that, that kind of thing.
2: So that basic belief that you're a fraud and you're going to be exposed at any moment is kind of the, the definition. What are some of the ways? To, could you just give some examples of how this might show up in terms of thoughts and emotions and that kind of thing? What's going on for people who experience this?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, maybe what we could do is give a couple of our own examples and really bring it to life because I'm sure you've had this experience too, yes. right? So well, we and both I'll
2: told give... our stories at the panel. Let's tell our own imposter syndrome stories.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, I, I remember when I was going to, from my master's program to my doctoral program, I had a mentor who pulled me aside and said, now, listen, you're gonna get to Boston and you're gonna think, Any minute now, everybody's going to find out I don't really belong here. And I looked at him like, oh, my God, how did you know? I already feel like that. And I had no idea this was even a thing at that time, right? So that was maybe my first introduction, even to this concept, before it had a name. But... The way that it really blew up for me and and the reason I had that feeling of, oh, my God, any minute now everybody's going to find out that I don't belong here is I applied to Boston University for my Ph.D. program, and I'm from Boston. I was living in San Diego at the time. And I didn't tell my family that I was applying because I was afraid that they would pressure me to, like, come back home, right? And also, when I looked at the statistics, I was quite certain there was no way I was going to get into the program because it was competitive and I didn't think that I was good enough. In fact, I knew I wasn't. Like, my numbers didn't match their numbers, so I was quite certain I wouldn't get in. Well, eventually, the guilt of not telling my family (laughs) got the better of me, and I confessed to my dad. And when I said, oh, I, you know, I applied to work with David Barlow at Boston University, and he had this like bulb of recognition. And he said, David Barlow, the psychologist? And, you know, my dad knows nothing or anyone in the mental health field. And I said, yeah, how do you know him? And he said, oh, I've played golf with him. And they happen to belong to the same golf club and had played golf before. And so the next time my dad saw Dave at the golf course, he said, oh, you know, my daughter's applying to your program. And Dave said, oh, great, you know, have her send me her credentials. And what's really funny, that I don't think I've told this part of the story in the past is somehow I had no idea who he was. Like, as I learned later, he's, you know, like this world famous anxiety expert. Yeah,
2: big for those who don't who aren't familiar. He's big in the anxiety world. Yeah. And if I had known that, I think I just would have like frozen
1: and fallen apart. Like really, the imposter syndrome would have been high. So I emailed him my credentials and he wrote back and said, you know, very impressive credentials. I look forward to reviewing your application. And I, what I also didn't know at the time is that that would be very unusual that you would send your application materials to the person who's in charge of an entire doctoral program. Anyway, long story short, I did get in, and to this day, I I mean, that was in the year 2000, so this was over 20 years ago, and to this day, I still wonder if the only reason I got into that program is because my dad knew Dave Barlow. And, you know, of course, the whole time I was there, I had massive imposter feelings because I thought everyone there was so much smarter and more deserving, and it was You know, And and something maybe we'll talk about in a little bit too is I do think that there might be some benefits to that and that it really made me work my butt off to prove myself. So what about you? What's your story?
2: Okay, my story. So I grew up in Colorado and, you know, went to public school all the way, middle class family, you know, worked really hard in school my whole life. And so I did well in high school and college and so then when i wanted to go to grad school in psychology i just applied for you know a few places and at my very last application was to harvard's phd program and i kind of submitted it last on a whim thinking i won't get into harvard i didn't i didn't think of myself as like harvard material you know i think that <laughs> harvard name just felt so like not congruent with me But I got in, I got into Harvard. And so I went to Harvard for my PhD program. And I think I was, you know, walking around the halls of Harvard and doing my work. And the whole time, I honestly believed that I, they just didn't look that closely at my application, or I got in on a fluke or something like that. And I really, you know, sometimes it was, not really something I was paying much attention to. It was always sort of there. But other times I really felt sure that this was the case, that I was just there on a fluke kind of thing, but that I didn't really belong. And I went through years and I did fine, really. I mean, I worked hard. I did the work. In the end, I I finished my PhD there. But toward the end of my PhD program, I saw signs up all over campus for a talk on imposter syndrome. And I don't even, I mean, this was so long ago, I don't even remember who was giving this talk because this was, I think, in the early years. This was also, you know, probably close to 20 years ago at this point, maybe in the mid, probably around 2004 something like that. Anyway, so I, I was like, huh, that's interesting. What is it? And so I went to this giant lecture hall at Harvard. And sure enough, this this woman who was presenting was talking about this exact feeling among high achieving people that they feel like they're an imposter, they don't belong there, that, you know, they're fooling everybody. But the most striking thing to me was that this lecture hall was packed. I mean, I feel like there were probably people who couldn't even get in the door, right? It was like, so many people were there. And that was my aha moment when I realized, this is a thing. This isn't like mm-hmm. the truth about me, which I had believed it was. And not only that, that there were other people at Harvard who felt the same way. Because I always felt like I was the only one who didn't belong. And that just totally changed my perspective on the whole thing, where I was able to see it for what it was. I bet you that was Valerie Young, who gave that it, talk. I think I it bet might have anything. been. Yeah. I bet it was too. I just don't remember. So I can't be sure. But I bet it was.
1: So she wrote a book on imposter syndrome, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, and she tells a story about, I mean, she does these talks all over to many places, but I'm pretty sure one of the specific examples she gives is how she went to give a talk at Harvard and and the auditorium was packed. So I'll have to look back and, and oh see gosh, if the, so if cool. the dates line up. I think you might have been there. Do you ever still feel that way? Like when you tell people, if people are asking or reading your bio and it comes up that you got your PhD at Harvard, do you ever have that feeling that people are like, really? You? Like, does it
2: still show up? You know, I mean, okay, imposter syndrome does still show up in my life sometimes, but it's not in that way. That's interesting you say that because at this point, I kind of feel like I can own it. Like I worked super hard. I finished my PhD. I do have a I feel like people have a reaction to the word Harvard, though, and so I sometimes, like, I knew someone and was pretty good friends with her for years before she found out I got my PhD at Harvard, and I think she was kind of like, what? (laughs) Just because I think, I sometimes I'm a little shy about it, because it feels like, I don't know. Anyway, but it does show up for me still.
1: I was recently talking to my dad, telling my dad about the panel and about writing the book, and... Interestingly, he had no clue what I was talking about, and and I, he hadn't heard the words "imposter syndrome." But then, when I explained what it was, I thought he would recognize the phenomena, if not the name. And he had no clue whatsoever. And so, I want to talk about that in a second. But when I explained where mine, when I told him the story about Dave Barlow and them knowing each other he never said, oh, don't be ridiculous. Of course, that's not how you got in. So even fairly recently, I had this inner thought of like, why isn't he objecting? Did he pay him off? Like, did he? Br- I mean, it. Is- <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I didn't ask him specifically because then I got afraid that like, what if that was true? I mean, I just find it so interesting that all these years later, and I can look at many objective markers that I've done just fine in my career. And I still have that voice that says, like, ooh, but maybe you really didn't deserve it. And in a way, when you think about it, it's sort of insulting to Dave Barlow to think that like he would <laughs> that of the twelve people he led into the program, he would take a bribe and let some right. You know, dummy. <laughs> Take that one he's of corrupt spots. enough
2: to just <laughs> let people buy their way in. Yeah, I, I highly doubt it, Jill. For whatever that's right. Written. Well, let me ask you this: What? How does it show up for you now? I'm curious.
1: Well, it still shows up for me now, like this, and even you know, telling that story. This is now only the third time I've ever really told that story, like in any kind of public setting. And now I think everyone listening is like, I knew it. I knew or, you know, people I went to grad school with are going, I knew it. I knew she didn't really belong in our program, that she wasn't as, as good as us. So it still shows up in that way. And then it shows up like anytime I do something that feels like kind of like a bold move. So like on the podcast, for example, I'll think about guests who I get really lit up about, you know, like, ooh, I really want to talk to Alicia Menendez, you know, or Eve Rodsky. And, and then I think, well, who do you think you are? You can't reach out to those people. Eve Rodsky's book was a Reese Witherspoon book, and Alicia Menendez is an MSNBC anchor. Like, you're not, big enough to reach out to those people like you're nobody, you know, it's it's that kind of thing feeling like an imposter, like I can't hang in that sort of elite group. Yeah, I mean, so I would it's that's probably the best example of how it plays out now. What about for you?
2: Well, I think the situation where I see it most strongly, it's a very specific situation for uh, psychologists, or, you know, professionals like me that do training in therapy is role play. So I train clinicians sometimes in acceptance and commitment therapy. And I hate doing role plays because I feel like if people actually, people who are in the field see me doing the therapy I'm supposed to know enough about to train people that they'll see that I don't really know what I'm doing. (laughs) Or even I've had therapists as clients before, and I've had that same worry. Or other times too, I think if I'm If I'm writing something or I don't know, there's, it shows up in a lot of different ways.
1: Well, I so relate to that. Even, even when I'm in a therapy session, sometimes I'll be having this meta thought of, thank God I'm not on camera right now. Because if people saw me doing therapy, they would be like, what, why are you doing this? You're not good at this.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, don't probably most therapists have moments where we think, I'm not really sure if I know what I'm doing here.
1: Yeah. And I I agree. Like the other place it shows up for me heavily is in writing. So the book that I'm writing about imposter syndrome is specifically for writers or people who want to write. And part of the reason for that is because it shows up so loud for me in that area. And, you know, I was When my book Be Mighty was coming out, I was setting up a Twitter account because, you know, you need to have a platform when you when you write, as you and Diana, I'm sure know, because you have your book coming out soon, too. And I'm setting up my Twitter bio. And I thought to myself, well, you need to put author and then immediately was like, you can't put author. You're not an author. Like, who do you think you are that you can call yourself an author But I was setting up a Twitter bio because I was getting ready for a book launch for my second book, right? So, like, how many books does someone have to write (laughs) before they can call themselves an author? And to me, apparently, it was more than two. And I went to a writing workshop with Danny Shapiro, who wrote the book Inheritance and a, a number of other books. She's amazing. And there's maybe, like, 300 of us in the room And she asks us, it's a writing retreat, right? She asks us, how many of you are writers? And I swear there were only like, I don't know, five or six hands that went up. And then she said, how many of you write? And every single person raised their hand. And that was another aha moment I had where I was like, they're the same as me. Mm -hmm. And you know, we did a lot of um, uh, kind of like writing to prompts and things like that. And we would share our writing. And, you know, they were all super talented, but they d- they couldn't call themselves
0: writers. We've had a number of guests on the show that we've been inspired by and that are offering you, our listeners, discounts on their programs. If you go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, you'll be able to find coupon codes for the programs of Dr. Judson Brewer, Dr. Rick Hansen, and Jen Lumenlin. So go check it out at offtheclockpsych.com and start learning today.
2: You know, I think this really speaks to the sense of like, how we identify ourselves. And sometimes we're actually doing something, but we don't even think of ourselves in that way. Maybe that's part of what contributes to it's like, Oh, I don't belong at Harvard. I'm not a writer. I one thing this showed up for me one time, Jill, you introduced me as an entrepreneur. And I was like, me and then i thought wait a minute i own a private practice i am out there you know marketing and i have a webpage and i file taxes and all the things that entrepreneurs do and i'm like oh but i just didn't think of myself in that way it's just it's almost like this yeah. sense of self and belief around who we are that and, yeah, and it.
1: how and how we define you know when i look at a writer I see Danny Shapiro or or Stephen King, and I am so not even close to looking anything like them that I couldn't possibly be a real writer. And so the same is probably true for you for entrepreneurs. When you think of what an example of an entrepreneur is, maybe it's, you know, Bill Gates or something. I don't know. But, yeah. you know, someone who probably... The reason they come to mind as an example is because we're familiar with their work because they're big in their field. But that doesn't mean that's the only way to be a real entrepreneur or a real writer. And and so much of that social comparison, I think, is what fuels this.
2: Yeah, there's this, this line of work in the business world about authentic leadership and how if you picture a leader, if you think of, if you're going to draw a picture of a leader on a piece of paper, and what does that leader look like? I think sometimes it's like we've internalized some sort of stereotypes around some sure. of this. And to think of yourself as you are, authentic you in the role of a leader, like that's a possibility. But sometimes mm-hmm. we just have trouble thinking of ourselves in that that way. And I think that's sort of built into some, you know, sexism and... I don't know, as a woman, I feel like sometimes you think of this leader, this stereotypical sort of like white male CEO executive type or something, because that's what's been ingrained in us all these years. And you think there are many, many, many amazing leaders who don't fit that category. And yet sometimes we kind of default to that assumption.
1: A hundred percent. And, you know, that's what I was going to say when I said, we'll get back to my dad, not having any clue about this imposter syndrome thing because he is a white, heterosexual, cisgendered, educated male of privilege, or what Janet Helms calls a wimp, W H M P, white, heterosexual, male of privilege. And So it appears to be less common in that group because if you think about cultural messages that, you know, like white, cis, straight, able-bodied boys have received their entire lives in a patriarchal culture, it's that you can do and be anything and you belong at all the tables, right? But if you think about the fact that, say, for example, like women couldn't even get their own bank accounts and credit cards as recently as the early 70s, like the year I was born, I believe, is the year women were finally allowed to not have a cosigner financially. Or segregation, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education wasn't until, what, 1954 when schools were desegregated and then Jim Crow laws. So when you look at certain marginalized groups, they have quite literally been told, like, Black people do not belong in white spaces. Women do not belong in men's spaces, right? And so on and so forth. So when that is a message that you have received over and over and over for a good portion of your life, well, then, of course, it makes sense that that would contribute to the development of those imposter feelings. And so it doesn't mean that Like white males can't have it. They certainly can. Like, so if you were an older guy who got a job at a super young tech company, you might have imposter syndrome. It's really like any space a person is in where there's a message overt or covert that maybe they don't totally belong, they can have it, but it seems to be more prevalent in women and, you know, people from other marginalized groups. And that makes sense, right?
2: Yeah, I think it's really important to acknowledge that context in which it, it comes from. And there's different versions of imposter syndrome. And certainly, I think it's a, a key point that you made that white males are not immune from it. But I do think that when you've been given that message and when that's been the message you've received your whole life, it makes a lot of sense contextually that that, that would show up for you.
1: Right, right.
2: Do you know, is there research about that? Are women, are people of color at higher risk for imposter syndrome? I don't know if that's been studied.
1: Yeah, so I've been looking into that, and you'll see a lot about imposter syndrome in pop culture, but there's not a ton of academic science. There's some, but not a ton, Most studies do show that it's more prevalent in women than men. What's interesting is one study I found where there were no differences, it was in academia. So like professors and things like that where men tend to have it equally to women. And, you know, it's such a competitive environment right? Where like, you're, you're sort of like, trained to feel like you don't, (laughs) don't belong in some ways. No
2: one feels like they belong there. Because it's uh, right. Yeah, the standards are so high.
1: So what you said, like that context is really important. But like, definitely, I think there needs to be more research done on it. Interestingly, I just came across a woman who is at MIT, whose name is Basima Tufik, and this is something that she's done some work around. And what she's really focused on is like, what I was saying in the beginning is like, should this really be called a syndrome? Like, that's so pathologizing. And is this all bad? And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is when you look at the books that are out there, they're all focused on, like, teaching you not to think of yourself as an imposter and trying to make you have more confidence. And, you know, of course, as ACT practitioners, we don't really buy into those control strategies. We look at looking at this in a different way. And what Basima Tufik talks about is how in in the way that we know that imposter, the imposter phenomenon and success are positively correlated is, you know, she talks about how there are some benefits to having these kinds of thoughts that, you know, in some ways it it essentially makes us kind of overcompensate. Like, ooh, if I feel like I'm not smart enough or I don't belong, then I better work doubly hard and be twice as good. And what that makes me think about is from an act standpoint, like what I would like to see is that we get more conscious about what are our choices and actions in the service of. So if I'm constantly trying to prove myself and overcompensate, and it's coming from a place of avoidance, like maybe that's not so healthy. But if instead I'm focusing on who and how do I want to be in the room, even though I'm having all this self doubt, you know, what does that look like? And even if the behavior might look the same to me, that piece about like, what is this in the service of and psychological flexibility feels like a really important one. And I think that's what we're lacking. I think right now people are just on autopilot. And they're either avoiding opportunity because they have imposter syndrome or they're going for it, but they're like really overcompensating and running themselves ragged to try to prove that they're good enough. And I think there's something in the middle that's like a healthier way to manage when these thoughts show up.
2: Yeah. So sort of stepping on that, like just bulldozing through trying to accomplish everything, but instead showing up and working hard and doing the thing you care about, even When that's the case. Yeah.
1: But for like values driven reasons, rather than I'm trying so hard not to feel like an imposter that I'm just going to keep achieving to try to make it go away. And what we know is like, that doesn't work.
2: That's a big difference. Yes. Values driven versus like, I hate feeling this way. So I've got to bend over backwards to feel adequacy. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about the prevalence and who's prone to imposter syndrome, because I understand it's more common than people may think. Yeah. So up until today, actually the statistic I
1: kept coming across, but again, there's not a ton of research, but the statistic I kept coming across was 70% of people will experience it at some point in their lives. But when I was looking at Basima Tufik's research, she actually said two in five. So that's only 40%. So It's somewhere in in between those numbers, (laughs) probably. Okay. Still substantial, right? But it's substantial. It's substantial. And then in terms of who's prone to it, it's this, I think, that anyone who's been part of a marginalized group... People who are high achieving, but this is a little bit of a chicken and an egg, as we were just talking about. Like, am I high achieving because I'm trying to outrun my imposter syndrome? Or like, what's going on with this correlation? Right. Because it's not cause and effect. But I think if we look at other factors, we just talked about cultural factors that can dictate this. But when you also look at someone's learning history, right. So, like, if you grew up with highly critical parents, who, you know, you might develop, like kids have to make meaning of their environment. And if your parents are highly critical, then that's going to turn into some version of an I'm not good enough story. And so that feeling of like, at any time now, people are going to find out I'm a fraud can kind of goes hand in hand with that. But interestingly, the opposite can also be true. So like, if you think about, instead of highly critical parents, if you have parents who you know, think that you are the greatest thing since sliced bread and they're cheering every time you go down the slide at the playground and, you know, you, you, the kid finger paints the toilet and you're like, I'm not even mad. You're like Picasso, you know, those like overly doting. Everything you do is amazing and everyone gets a participation trophy, even if you didn't deserve it that people as you grow up. Even if you were little, there's like a part of you that knew you didn't really deserve all those accolades. And so now, like, you might get the promotion or win the award, and there's that voice that says, like, but did I really deserve it? Like, maybe I didn't really earn it. So I think those kinds of learning history, parental, you know, like most things, we can understand how they develop based on cultural influences personal learning history, like with family influences. And then certainly, I think there's even an evolutionary piece to this, right? Where like, if you think about early humans, you know, we didn't have claws and fangs, we had each other. And humans who hunted and gathered and traveled together had a survival advantage. So early humans would, by necessity, have to to constantly be checking their standing in the tribe. Like, am I doing my part? Am I valued? Am I at risk of getting kicked out? Because if you got kicked out, you were dead. So our, our tendency to compare ourselves to others has really been like evolutionarily programmed. So I think that really relates to imposter syndrome too, because there's yeah. so much of comparing that that is part of it.
2: You know, I have two thoughts, piggybacking on what you're saying here. The first is, you know, in terms of who has imposter syndrome. Some Sometimes clients that I'm working with will express some of this, and it's a great thing, I think, to talk about in therapy. And sometimes I'm shocked by who is talking to me about imposter syndrome, because sometimes it is, they really are, it's like you were saying earlier, they are usually people who on the surface just so look like they have it all together. You know, successful, high achieving people who work hard and are educated and have good careers and all that stuff and so i'm always like it's just amazing to me how it is happening inside but we don't usually show it on the outside or it might surprise you who's experiencing this Mm -hmm. and the other thing and this idea actually came from our mutual friend miranda morris who was on our original panel is that work isn't the only place where this shows up you know just speaking to that idea of the group and comparison and i think Sometimes in other roles, like, for instance, parenting, there can be a similar version of this, too, right? Of, like, believing that everybody else is better at this than me. If they could only see how I'm really parenting behind closed doors, they might know that I don't really know what I'm doing there. And it was Miranda was talking about this on our last panel, and I was thinking, I think of it more as a work-related phenomenon, but that it can really happen in a lot of different ways for people.
1: Yeah, I think anywhere that there is, you know, a, a group essentially, like that, there's a, like, oh, the moms at school, or like you said, parents yeah. or yeah. coworkers or athletes. You know, I had a client who was a professional athlete, and he struggled with it, right, yeah. because he was comparing himself to these other, you know, like high level, top, the world's best
2: athletes. Yeah. Any role that's meaningful to you, it feels like it's possible that you could feel this way. I think that's right on. Yeah. So there have been some subtypes of imposter syndrome identified. And Jill, you have this fantastic quiz. First of all, tell people where they can take your quiz, because I think people, after they hear about this, they'll want to know what their imposter syndrome subtype is.
1: Okay. So this is, this is also Valerie Young's work and she identified five subtypes. And so you, if you go to my website, which is com, and just click on the menu, it'll say take the quiz. So you can go there, take the quiz and it'll tell you which of the five subtypes you are.
2: So I'm the expert. What were you, Debbie? I don't remember. Do you remember? I think, I think I was a combination of two, but one of them is the one that feels like, You have to do, you can't ask for help. And you have to do everything yourself. The soloist. Yeah, that's the soloist. Yeah.
1: So that's a good point when you say you were the combination of two. So if you read all the descriptions, you'll see yourself in more than one typically. But everyone kind of has one that's their, like, go-to. So I'll, I'll describe what they are. So the soloist is exactly what you said, where... It only counts. Like, I only get credit for being competent if I did it myself. And if I have to ask for help, like, this is proof that I'm a fraud. That's the soloist. I'm the expert. The expert is the person who that your competence is based on how much knowledge, skills, experience, expertise you have, and you never feel like you have enough. So experts are the ones who are like always taking another class, always reading another book, you know, trying to pursue that moment where you go, okay, now I know enough to not feel like a fraud. There's also the natural genius, and that's the person who feels like, You know, proof of competence comes from knowing things naturally. So if it takes me a long time to learn something, that's proof that I'm a fraud. You know, I should be able to read something once and get it. You know, I should be able to be taught something once and be able to nail it the next time I do it because it's a belief that it's this internal natural ability. Then there is the perfectionist. So that's pretty self-explanatory. You know, very high standards. Everything has to be done at that perfect level. And when it's not, which inevitably there's always something that could it could always be better, right? So then that proves competence. And of course, proves is in uh air quotes, right? It's like this is the belief we have. That proves I'm incompetent. And then the last one is the superhuman. And so this is the person who has perfectionism, but also feels like they should be able to do all the things all the time, like juggling every ball on fire, never letting one drop, and that they should always be able to take on more. And, you know, ultimately, one of those balls will get dropped. And then that's proof. Oh, see, I knew it. I was a fraud after all. So if you're curious which one you are, you can take the quiz and it's it's
2: interesting like I, As you're talking, I'm like, I see a little bit of each of those in, like, I can kind of relate to each one of those a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's pretty, that's pretty typical.
1: That's pretty typical. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I'm pretty squarely in that expert place, for sure. I, I so, it just resonates with me so much. I even talk in my book, I confess, like, I went back, I was doing a little research on myself, I guess you would say, and I look to see like, how many writing podcasts do I subscribe to? How many newsletters? How many books about writing have I written? How many writing classes have I taken? How many consultants? And I added up, you know, a lot of those things I mentioned are free. But when I added up over the last however many years, it's about a decade, I've spent like $20,000 over a decade on, like, trying to make myself feel like I have enough knowledge and expertise about writing to consider myself a real writer. And you know what the title of the book is? Not a Real Writer. Because guess what? Mm. I still don't feel like I'm a real writer. And I talked to, so Janina Scarlett, who we know, who's been on the podcast, and she was also on our panel. She's on her 10th book. And do you think she feels like a real writer? (laughs) She does not. Not yet. Right, And there was a woman I was interacting with on Twitter who posted, I forget what she posted, I think she was publishing a book, and I saw she had all her books that she had written in her bookcase behind her, and I counted them, and there were 27. And I tweeted her to say, was it your 27th book that made you feel like you finally weren't an imposter as a writer anymore? And she was like, nope, hasn't
2: happened yet. (laughs) That's the thing about imposter phenomenon, right, is that you'll Mm -hmm. never get there. Like if you're trying to cure it by accomplishing certain things, that's not really going to do the trick. It still persists even when you do all of these things. And I think part of the reason for that is
1: because the higher you go, the more you think other people expect you to know. Like if I've never written a book, nobody expects me to know anything about writing a book. But once I've written a couple, like now I'm supposed to know something about this, but I still don't feel like I know enough. So maybe I need to write another
2: one and another one. And right? I, that expert thing, I, I've talked about this on the podcast in the past. One time I was writing a talk and I was like searching all these books on my shelf, trying to, I had a point I wanted to make something I wanted to say, but I was like, I felt like I needed to back it up with the words of an expert. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm an expert. Like I'm getting invited here to give a talk on this matter i can just say it and it was like this aha moment of like oh i know something about this but i almost felt like these other people are all experts not me and there's this never-ending desire to synthesize all that information and take another class and read another book
0: and totally yeah
2: you could read every book on the planet and still feel that way so we've pretty much identified that most of us, or at least a lot of us, are experiencing some version of this. So Jill, based on your expertise, what would you recommend for someone who's struggling with imposter syndrome? How, what can they do about this? Well, I think first and foremost is
1: recognizing that this is a natural way to feel when you care about something. You know, as I said, like, this has sort of been programmed. It was programmed a long time ago by evolution, by learning experience, by cultural variables. And I don't think that there's like a magic wand that can make us suddenly not feel like imposters. And in fact, when you look at some of the people who don't have this, like, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is the cognitive bias where people overestimate their knowledge or competence, and then they also are unable to recognize. So they have confidence, but not competence, and they don't recognize that they don't have competence.
2: Yeah, isn't that that that's the phenomenon where people who are experts at something kind of underestimate their competence, and then people who are novices and don't know anything about it, they think they know more than they actually do.
1: That's exactly right. So people who know nothing generally know they know nothing, right? Like, I I would never think that I know everything about being an NBA basketball player. But it's like the people who have a little bit of knowledge way overestimate how much they actually know. And then they fail to recognize that they're overestimating what they actually know. (laughs) And this isn't a great cognitive bias to find yourself in, to have confidence about your competence, but not have the competence, right? And those people don't have imposter syndrome. And, you know, so, so partly recognizing that this is something that I can use to my advantage because it's telling me, well, this thing must matter to me because I wouldn't care so much about being found out if I didn't care about this thing. So maybe it's teaching me what I need to move toward. So I don't need to change it. I don't need to wait until I feel more confident or certain that I belong before I move forward with this thing that matters to me? And of course, you know, like my personal bias is that we build psychological flexibility and use ACT skills. So can I be aware that I'm having these thoughts and feelings? Can I be clear on what matters to me? Like maybe what are these thoughts pointing toward that matters? Can I observe all of that and make space for it? and move forward with these things that matter anyway. And as I was saying in the beginning, I think being more conscious and deliberate about not just pursuing achievements as a way to try to feel better, to feel less like a fraud, but doing it because it's something that's important, even if I still feel this way.
2: That's great advice. Yeah. So continuing to do all those things you care about and not buying too much into those beliefs to slow you down, but also not feeling like you have to overcompensate for them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I one thing I want to add that I think is really important, and this is where that, you know, that packed lecture hall at Harvard is so was so striking to me, is just the sense of recognizing that you're not alone and belonging. And actually, having conversations like the one we're having today, I think there's something that Matters a lot about being able to get support and share with other people about the experience. And so I think if you're in a situation where you're, I don't know, you're in school or in a high achieving job or something like that, and you're feeling some of this is to find people you feel safe talking to about it and just acknowledge it and share. And I think that you'll find that you're not alone and that there's actually something really helpful about acknowledging it.
1: I think that's absolutely true and so powerful. And that's really what we found by doing that initial panel. It brought everyone out of the woodwork saying, yeah, I struggle with this too. And knowing that you struggle with it makes me feel less bad about it. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think there's so much power in that that common humanity and especially seeing examples of people who say, hey, I struggle with this and I haven't let it stop me you know, I think can be a good model for other people to say, oh, right, like I could go for it even if I feel this way too.
2: Well, and I think it feels a little vulnerable sometimes to acknowledge these things. Like you were saying, even telling the the golf David Barlow story out loud, there's a part of you yeah. that feels a little funny about putting that out into the world, but that it also feels a little bit liberating, I think, to just, you know, instead of holding
1: it inside... Yes. And now that I've told the story like three times, it was easier to tell it today than the very first time I confessed it. And now I kind of want to keep telling it because I know it. I mean, that's a That's diffusion, right? It's like and just secrets in general. When you when you start talking more openly about these things, it really takes the power away from the story, because at the end of the day, it's just a story.
2: Well, thank you, Jill, for those thoughts. I think this is really I've learned a lot from you about this. And I just love that we have this shared connection around our personal experience. And I'm hoping that listeners will find it helpful as well, because I'm sure many people have experience with this themselves. I'm sure and I hope people will reach
1: out like we would love to hear from you guys. If you want to comment on our social media posts or even shoot us an email, you can always contact me. My email is jas at jillstoddard.com or you can contact the podcast at offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we would love to hear your stories and I think it will be helpful for you guys to share in the same way that it's been helpful for us
2: yeah so all you frauds and imposters out there please reach out thanks Debbie this was fun thanks Jill
0: Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off The Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
1: We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller.
2: This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.